Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. But the rewards that I didn't really think about that I find really pull my emotional strings is how these women feel about the brand. I mean, it almost makes me to tears when I'm on QVC or HSN when these women call in, they talk about their experiences, the handbag, how it was that conversation that they met their best friend and the handbags between their daughter and their grandmother. This is one thing that they connected on or the wife that this was a gift her husband gave her, introduced her to Patricia Nash, and now her husband's gone, and this bag has so much meaning to her. I mean, the stories, you know, and I think to myself, it's just a bag. But it's not the bag, it's what the brand means to them. You know, they know it's about the travel, they know it's about the dreams, the aspirations, they know it's about family, they know it's about cultures from different parts of the world. So it's what that bag represents, and I never thought it would be so powerful. Every day, that is what I would say is the most rewarding and also the most humbling. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and we're recording here today across two U.S. states as I'm here at my new part-time outpost in the sunny Florida panhandle. And my Fletcher PR co-host for Misinterpreted, Mary Beth West, is back in Knoxville with our guest today. So Mary Beth, how goes it back in Knox, Vegas? Hey there, Kelly, and hello, listeners. All is well back here in the land of orange and white, but got to tell you, we're starting to get that East Tennessee feeling of fall in the air, and I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, I miss that down here at the beach, even though I am (laughs) loving the Florida life for a while. There's no place like Knoxville, no place like home. And as autumn starts transitioning over. Well, that's right. You know, I've been really jealous of you being down there at the beach and all of that. But we're going to have to get you back up here, Kelly. Yes. Well, I've enjoyed some alone, remote working time. It's been very therapeutic. I bet it (laughs) has. It has. I was planning to be there in person today, but uh, travel schedules just wouldn't cooperate. So I'm calling in for the podcast today. Well, that's okay. Well, we miss you here in Knoxville. And especially since I know you're pretty jealous about where I'm sitting right now. One of my favorite places, and I am jealous because you're getting to record on site from the headquarters of a terrific corporate friend of our firm and two women in leadership. They are a mother daughter team who have built such a respected brand in the fashion industry, all from a headquarters in downtown Knoxville, Tennessee, and beside the railroad tracks, by the way. So <laughs> you never know. We may get a few train whistles in the background. That's right. That's right. We are in a very historic building. It's about a 100-year-old building. And yeah, there is a little bit of a good old hustle bustle of downtown background noise. So we're going to be getting a fair amount of that. But I am very excited and proud to welcome to the show along with you, Kelly. Patricia Nash and Jennifer Evans of Patricia Nash Designs. And they are now celebrating, of course, 10 years of Patricia Nash Designs. It is a truly inspired brand, including Patricia Nash handbags, footwear, accessories, and Nash for Men products available at fine select department stores and boutiques. Everything from Macy's and Dillard's and Belk to online specialty retailers, as well as HSN, QVC, and Zulily.com. 
Clearly, Patricia is the namesake designer and visionary of the brand. Her daughter, Jennifer, serves as VP Operations and Strategy, as well as General Counsel. And together, the two have been fairly unstoppable, Kelly. We finally got our wish last year on a special strategic charitable giving plan. We worked with Patricia to tie in with her brand's 10th anniversary. So we're going to talk about that on today's show, as well as uncover Patricia's story and both her career path and Jennifer's as well, as they've built this company and as such a formidable mother-daughter team. Well, Patricia and Jennifer, thank you for joining Kelly and me today, and welcome to Misinterpreted. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. We're very excited about having you both on. And I thought I might kick off this conversation with having our listeners get a real introduction to the brand. We'd really like to understand from a foundational start, you know, going back 10 years ago, how the company started. You know, you may not know this, but actually a fair number of our listeners are international. They're from overseas. And so because so much of your brand has that international flair and is so undergirded with this lifestyle ethic of travel, we'd really like for you to tell us how that inspiration came about, how it first took root as you started the business, Patricia. So do you want to start with that? Absolutely. Great. Well, I've been in this industry for about 25, maybe close to 30 years now. So a long time. And I have traveled quite extensively in Europe and in Asia. I had the international license to some really big brands all through Europe. So my introduction to Europe and culture there and lifestyles grew over the years of of being in that industry. But to get to the Patricia Nash point, about 10 years ago, or maybe a little longer, 12, 13 years ago, I thought I might retire, believe it or not. And the women in the industry said, why Why would you do that? You are so talented. Why don't you come up with your own brand? And I hesitated at first because I thought, well, there's so much the same out there that it'd have to be really different, something that I was really passionate about. And I started reflecting on the collection of frame bags that I've bought over the years. I love a good vintage shop in Europe, whether mm-hmm. it be in London or Milan or Paris, that always free time, do that type of shopping. And then I started realizing I really had a love and appreciation of amazing leather, craftsmanship. And the kind of wow moment was when I found this bag in my mother's closet that she had had for about 50 years. It was all wrapped up in tissue and then in a bag. And when I saw it, I go, what's this, mom? And she said, oh, it was a gift from my father-in-law, the only gift I ever got from your grandpa. And she said, it's a bag you gave me. And I looked at this bag, I opened it up, and this bag was an old leather bag. It was laced, and it had tooling on it, and it aged so beautifully. It was like one of those, that's it. If I can make bags that look like this now, but have the functionality for what, as a woman, we need today, and then be at a price point where more women could enjoy it, This is something I could get behind, Mm -hmm. and I think I could put my name on it. So I started down that journey, and it took another year and a half just to figure it out what that meant. But yeah, I haven't looked back since. Wow. Well, I have quite a few of your bags, and I now have four pairs of your shoes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Jennifer, over to you. I mean, your career, you're a pretty intimidating person. I mean, you, you attended Cambridge before earning your bachelor's from Vanderbilt and then getting your law degree at UT. And you worked in education policy for a number of years before joining your mother's business. And it's been a true partnership with her. It's interesting to watch the dynamic between the two of you. I've gotten to witness that firsthand. So tell us, with this growth trajectory you're on and with your managing the operations side of that, which I know is a tough business, tell us about how you manage Patricia Nash Designs. Well, first of all, <laughs> very much closely with mother and learning from her constantly. I mean, I first had a foray into this industry, I guess, when I was in Hong Kong. That was between Vanderbilt and law school. And I was kind of in a transition after my first job after college. And she was also in a transition where she was exiting a company that she had built and thinking about her next move. And so I went over there and and worked over there for a short time. And so I got to see that side, the manufacturing side, which was great because we have some of those same relationships. Some of those same factories have become family over the years. I mean, that was like almost 20 years ago. So that was instrumental. And so then I went and did my own thing for a while. She did her own thing, kind of moved to New York. And then we always kind of wanted to, knew we might work together. And then the timing just happened to where I was kind of ready for my next challenge. And she had just started the brand. And and so it was like, okay, how might this work? And so I just kind of jumped in and it was just trial by error. I mean, I think she was kind of like, okay, take this and see how you do with that. And so it's just really been, you know, jump in the fire and take on a little bit. And it's funny, every every time I think I've like, okay, I've got this process or this organization or I've got this figured out, then I'm like, oh God, there's a whole nother layer to this business that she's been doing. And sometimes I get really impatient. You know, over the years, it's been seven years in this business with her. And I realized how little I know every day. I figure something out or I We have a success or something, and then I'm like, okay, tell me more about the sales side. Tell me more about the financial side. Or even this year where she's been doing this for years, and it's like, wow, that just blows your mind, this whole pandemic and everything. How do you meet those challenges and everything? So I guess to answer your question, it's a daily learning process, and it's just constantly communicating with both of us. What should we do here? What's our plan? You know, tomorrow, what's our plan next week? What's the six-month plan? And just constantly trying to think about best case, worst case scenario and, and how we do that. I always say in business, the more you learn, the less you feel like you know. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> True, true. So true. One thing that strikes me is that there's the family aspect that for some people, it's almost like a double-edged sword. I mean, there's the part where you know, blood is thicker than water and there's the trust aspect. There's nobody you can trust like you can trust your family. But then I've seen some family businesses where the interpersonal sometimes just is hard. My husband is in the automotive business and with car dealerships. And there's so many of those businesses are family owned or family managed. And it's very interesting to see those that work well as opposed to those that don't. But it's just interesting how you all have made that work well. And it clearly, you both get along well beyond just the trust factor that's there. Oh, absolutely. I think for one thing, you have to be patient and then you also have to be willing to compromise because you learn real quickly that maybe your daughter's work style is different than yours and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So you have to know that there's no option here other than to it work. It has to work. 
that's the mindset. The mindset's a little bit different when you hire someone. You, of course, want it to work, and you put everything you have in it. But with family, there's no option. This right. can't turn out bad. Right. If it's not a success business-wise, it has to be a success that we got through it together, good or bad. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I'd love to take a look earlier as well to some of the years that were predating some of the startup of the business. And I think this is is relevant too. going into that conversation about the mother-daughter team. Did you both ever envision doing something like this together? You had mentioned earlier that it had crossed your mind, but had you all ever really had that definitive conversation before of actually talking about something in the fashion business or something or, or a creative type of field. Absolutely. In fact, she was very anxious to start in the business, but it was very important to me that she made a name for herself and went out there in the world. So as she said, she almost spent a year in Hong Kong actually living there and working in my merchandising office there in Hong Kong with our merchandisers, learning the business. But when she came back, she went to law school and out of law school, it was like, okay, now go apply what you've learned with your degree apply it to managing a team of people, apply it to whatever is your passion, but let's start there. And then I would say it was the next year or two years later, can we talk about what we talked about? And I go, not yet, not yet, but a time will come. And so I always had it in my mind that I was going to find a role and that she would be a part of it, but I wanted her to have that experience and I wanted the timing to be right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was a young mother. Then she started having babies and it was like, no, nope, not right yeah. now. <laughs> she was like, get over with that and then come see me when they're out of diapers. So you were very purposeful or very intentional about yes. not only timing, but also making sure that she had been out there and felt comfortable being able to just challenge you, being able to challenge Absolutely. everyone around her with, yeah. you know, her knowledge and her expertise and all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad she did because yeah. I wouldn't have a lot to compare to except for Hong Kong or internships or whatever I did in between school years. So I'm glad. And I didn't live in Knoxville and grow up here at all. So law school was like my first foray into living here. And, you know, I was really busy working and going to school. So it also gave me a chance to get to know Knoxville a little bit, get to know the community, because here, it's funny, I came to work here and I was on like five boards and I was like volunteering, all this stuff. And then she was like, well, you can try, but it's going to be hard. I'm glad I got that out of my system, I guess. But, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Well, I, I really look up to both of you as business women and, and think you're just remarkable business women. And Patricia, I wonder, as your business has evolved over these past 10 years, what has been the most rewarding aspect? of your journey as an entrepreneur? Well, it's always rewarding when you succeed at your product is loved, you know, and and that it continues on. 10 years to me is such a landmark because so many brands out there come and go and there's just a handful of us that continue to be selling in that zone. But the rewards that I didn't really think about that I find really pull my emotional strings is how these women feel about the brand. I mean, it almost makes me to tears when I'm on QVC or HSN when these women call in, they talk about their experiences, the handbag, how it was that conversation that they met their best friend and the handbags between their daughter and their grandmother. This is one thing that they connected on. 
or the wife that this was a gift her husband gave her, introduced her to Patricia Nash, and now her husband's gone, and this bag has so much meaning to her. I mean, the stories, you know, and I think to myself, it's just a bag. But it's not the bag. It's what the brand means to them. You know, they know it's about the travel. They know it's about the dreams, the aspirations. They know it's about family. They know it's about cultures from different parts of the world. So it's what that bag represents. And I never thought it would be so powerful. Every day, that is what I would say is the most rewarding and also the most humbling. Yeah, what's true as women, your bag goes everywhere with you. It's part of your life. You kind of go through life with whatever bag you're carrying. It just becomes a part of your persona almost. So what about what's been hard? I'm sure that you probably have a long list of struggles that you've been through in business, but was there one in particular that it's happened that you weren't expecting? Well, it has to be what's happened to this world, this pandemic. I thought that I was almost in a place of being foolproof. I had been in business for so long before I started my brand. I often talk about it with my husband that I am so fortunate to have started Patricia Nash when I was 50 years old because I had owned a public company. I had ran big brands, global brands. I had sold all over the world. I had sourced in different parts of the world. I mean, I kind of felt like I was so seasoned that it would have to take something just crazy. I couldn't even plan what it could be that could hurt my business. And then the pandemic hit. And within three days, we had lost almost $10 million in orders. We oh, th- my gosh. And we didn't get about another $10 million that we were supposed to. So within one week's time, we had lost about $20 million in business. I mean, that hits you like a brick. Okay, what are we going to do here? And so it was a whole different set of skills a whole different think outside the box when they use that terminology. This was literally like there was no manual of how to handle it. So that was a challenge I never thought of and has really made me think different now that there is always going to be something. You think you got to figure it all out? You do not. Absolutely. Yeah, what you have to do is just be nimble to make a quick right, left turn, stop, go, you know, you've got to be like really quick in your feet of what to do next, you know, to stop the hemorrhaging over your overhead, stop production, pull back leather, you know, you just have to think in warp speed of how you're going to handle the crisis. And so I feel really good about how we're recovering from it and how I'm handling it, but I never thought I'd be going through it at No, No. I've said that I would have predicted nuclear war before I would have predicted a pandemic. But I've noticed that you all seem to, and maybe it's just because I follow your brand more closely now than I ever have, but it seems like you've ramped up your digital and social media presence and maybe even a bigger focus on direct to consumer. Has that been part of the strategy during COVID? Yeah, you know, Jennifer really pushed me. I got to give her credit for that, to push me to just be real and spend some time with my ladies out there. So my home was kind of typically in the past has been kind of off limits and I haven't really let my guard down, so to speak, with everyone. 
but we did a lot of social postings where I was home, no makeup, sitting on a chair, talking about how we're all doing, you know, and what's happening out there. And then we started doing more raw shows on HSN and QVC in my living room or in the kitchen talking to right. someone. And so it just became even more authentic and more natural and engaging that then we ended up doing our own photo shoot with the family. So the whole thing just kind of naturally happened organically. I wouldn't say it was strategic that we'd have this outcome, but Jennifer just knew that I had to be out there and deal with it. (laughs) Well, we've been talking about it for a long time, and either your travel conflict or you were like, eh, we don't really need to do that. But then I remember I asked you in the beginning of this whole mess, I was like, you know, what do you want me to focus on? I just felt helpless. We all kind of were like, what should we, you know, shaking our heads. And then you said, look, you need to make sure we get out there and we are seen and we're marketed and all this, whatever we need to do. And so we started doing the daily giveaways and we started whatever. And I think women just ate it up because they were looking for, well, they were all sitting at home in quarantine and they were looking for something real. Like who else is going through this? Who is feeling this. And I think it just it came across because it was very authentic. And I think it's really carried us. Yeah. And it's a new level of connection that I feel, you know, with everybody out there. I mean, even another layer of responsibility to give them what just to make the most amazing product at the most amazing price for them and to be there and remain connected with them. So it really is interesting, too, how as women, we really know the difference between something authentic and something propped, you know? And yes. we were really authentic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I look at myself and I just go, oh, my God, I look terrible, you know? But it is what it is. Well, you're human and you're relatable. And I imagine it probably built more of a group of super fans because mm-hmm. they feel like they really know you. And I know in the home shopping business, because I was in that business before, viewers really do feel like they know you on a personal level. So now it's not just there, it's across your whole brand. I think it's so cool what you've done. And that takes some courage too, to to let people in and see you up close and personal. It does, especially when you're in the fashion business. I mean, we had, well, we still have a New York showroom and we just had remodeled it. It's a pretty nice showroom. It's a lovely place. And You know, you go in there dressed to the gills, right, just with that designer outfit on and playing the part. And then to go from that, then to be sitting in your living room with a black T-shirt and jogging pants, it's like pretty (laughs) real. It's pretty real. But you still need a good handbag to go with the jogging pants and the black T-shirt. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. you can gain 15 COVID pounds and still look good. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) you don't have to try it on. That's what I love about your brand. (laughs) True, true. I think it was that line from uh, Steel Magnolias that they said, uh, the only thing that separates us from the animals is our ability to accessorize. (laughs) (laughs) So so we have to hang on to these quotable quotes sometimes. Yeah, there you go. You know, one thing that strikes me, too, is the way that you've managed your team as well. So, and, and Jennifer, with regard to your work with operations and really managing the people behind the business, has there been mentoring that's been going on or extending help to your team to be sure there's a cohesiveness there to just help everybody through this time? 
Tell about that process because that has to be really challenging. Yeah. I mean, first of all, when I started seven years ago with her and this brand, there's probably five or six of us in that little office on Gay Street. And so now to have the many people we do, around 30, 35 maybe, including New York and other around, you kind of have to be a little bit more corporate. And so sometimes we're a little behind the ball. But then I think at the beginning of this, we were kind of like, okay, let's communicate to everyone. And so we did. We were pretty consistent in emailing everyone and do what you need to do. And even still, we're staggered here just out of precaution. I think everyone feels safe. We all wear masks all day. So I think just communicating. But yeah, it was a little bit of a different environment than I think we're both used to because it used to just be a few of us. And you know, now everybody's got families. Now everybody expects yeah. to, you know, I need to do this or whatever. But it usually happens when someone says, hey, can I take a, a course? Or it's more of like a, they request, not necessarily mentoring, but some development some outside, opportunity. Yeah, some outside. Yeah. It's not that we kind of like came out on the front end of that, but we've been really good, I think, at offering that. And then, of course, she's mentoring the design group. Sure. And they learn a ton from her. Oh, absolutely. And I think just sharing that vision and keeping that dialogue going is obviously so important. And we'd love to explore the corporate social responsibility piece to the project for the 10-year anniversary and how that initiative involved. And of course, that's the Patricia Nash Emergency Fund. When you all had initially reached out to us about that project, You had some definitive ideas about that, and it was tied to your 10-year anniversary. So I would like to start the conversation on that just to have you tell us a little bit how that first sparked your interest, the whole idea of doing something there. And, you know, obviously this has been the pandemic year and things have had to shift course on what the original strategy perhaps, but would just love to get the core aspect there. It was about this time last year, and I know she. we were traveling, but mom had seen a, uh, a Refinery29 or one of those Instagram posts, and it was this whole thing about homelessness, and right. we were traveling, and she showed me, and I was like, wow, this is crazy. And it was this lady in L.A. that was basically providing free services to homeless women. It was makeup or hair, just making them feel better. And, you know, she was also planning for a 10th anniversary and wanting to give back, and so... We were already working with another PR company on something else, but it just didn't feel like the right fit. So I remember Kelly was kind of dogged, and every six months or maybe once a year, she would reach out and say, I would love to work with you. And I knew the work with women she'd done. And so I said, we're kind of toying with this. Do you want to talk? But we kind of got to move fast. So I remember we were in our hotel room in Italy, and we and we called her up. And I, I couldn't even be there the next week, but you met with her. And then we just kind of went from there on what we were looking for. And it didn't end up being... I mean, yeah, it is about homelessness, but it turned into a relationship with the YWCA and providing that emergency fund for, you know, different things that might come up. Because part of the research that was presented was, you know, it could be $150 is the difference between someone that's on the street or has some kind of viable housing option. And so we were like, God, it doesn't really take that much, does it? So what can we do? And so this plan's got a little stunted heading into 2020, but we still stayed with our commitment to at least help this YWCA. So... I'm excited to see what they're able to do with the emergency fund. Yeah, so you all launched it with a gift to the Knoxville YWCA in the spring, right? Right, right. Presented it at their yeah. Keys of Hope luncheon, which was also a 10th anniversary moment for them. And that was their housing scholarship fund. So we were happy to do that. We gave them little keychains to everybody that donated. So I think they really appreciated it. 
That's awesome. It is. And and what are your hopes for the future on that? I know that there are a lot of other markets with YWCA and, you know, I know that you all are really a global brand in your reach. So as that partnership continues, is there, do you think, opportunity to look at expanding that in the future? I think absolutely. It's just, obviously, we're just trying to navigate our way through this extraordinary year. Right. And a lot of the market feels like it's not going to improve very much next year as well. So we're we're just kind of, I mean, I I think no one can really predict the future. Right. But I'd certainly like to get back on task of that because it is quite emotional to know that a woman that you would never think would be on the street, so to speak, with such little money can help her just make that rent that one more month and then maybe she gets a job that next month. So yeah, there is a real want to continue with that. Well, and one thing that impressed upon me was the degree that you all had an interest in really learning about the issue and understanding how it impacted women. And then the next step in the process that you all engaged there was really involving your team in the process of having dialogue internally and getting their input. So that seemed to be such a, just part of your value system. And I think that's emblematic of how companies these days really need to undertake corporate social responsibility, just making it a holistic part of how they integrate, not only how they want to be perceived externally, but really using it as a relationship building opportunity with internal audiences as well as external. Yes. And we were there when you rolled it out to your team and it was emotional presentation. Mm, I mean, a lot of your, the women were, you know, in tears and starting to talk about their own stories and how important this was and how proud they were that their company was doing something to give back. So kudos to you all on that. So let's pivot a little bit to the retail environment for 2020 and what's going on here with the pandemic and How do you see the future of retail evolving, Patricia, especially in light of this upcoming holiday season? Well, I mean, retail was delicate before the pandemic. When you talk about brick and mortar doors, you know, that's digital had taken a chunk out of a lot of different businesses. There was a lot of malls that were failing across the country prior to the pandemic. So this just like fast forwarded a lot of retailers that were already really risky of succeeding to just close their doors. So you've seen a number of bankruptcies, a number of big shrinkages between locations of major retailers. So there, it is a very delicate, delicate time right now where there's a lot of confidence in some, not for others. Financing some of these retailers has become a really big challenge because the financial community is not pro-retail. They're really not feeling like a lot of these companies will recover. Holiday shopping, yeah, I think it's going to be very soft in the brick-and-mortar stores, obviously very elevated in digital, and then, of course, with you know TV viewing and things like that. But it's a tough time. I mean, a lot of companies that have really taking the reins back. You know, Macy's has had a considerable amount of layoffs, really reduced down their operating costs considerably, but they still have a lot of challenges. So every day it's kind of reinventing how you 
utilize your space, kind of this real omni connection between digital and picking orders in stores instead of maybe warehouses and just a lot of new ideas of how to do this as efficient as they can to try to hold cash flow until sales get better. It's not as much fun to shop with a mask on. I'd rather watch home shopping or shop online too, just because it's just, it takes away from the in-person experience. But I'm curious, I know you're already well into 2021 with your designs and what are some trends we're going to be seeing in 2021? Definitely, you're going to see a lot of color. Color makes people happy, bright colors. I think you're going to see yellows and oranges and reds and you're going to see happy prints. You're going to see a lot of messaging. You're going to see more specialty type things, at least in our classifications, that just make us happy. Give us a reason to buy. You know, they want to feel better. So we are seeing just all through next year being a huge print cycle for us. And like I said, a lot of color. So mm -hmm. that's exciting. It is. And speaking about the digital side, I really enjoyed seeing the Facebook campaign when it came out a number of weeks ago, the photo shoot. <laughs> yes, of your family members and the photo layouts and the yeah. the spread. I really, I well, no, I have to ask just the concepting behind that and how you all envisioned it all to come together because it is beautifully done. And I love the fact that it's family. And so tell us about that. And I really want to direct our listeners to go online and see the full campaign. That's It's being executed in Facebook for sure, but in other... It's across all. Yeah, I mean, it's all Instagram, your Instagram and in all. stores, yeah. you go into dealers, it's there. And yeah. It, yeah. Well, we do a photo shoot every quarter, right? So you do yeah. all the lifestyle assets for the entire season, of which is about three months. And so we were coming up on shooting for fall, which is, you know, 10th anniversary. And we were going to have all these personal appearances in stores and all this. And I was what are we going to do? I mean, I don't feel comfortable bringing our crew from New York. They probably don't feel comfortable jumping on a plane and coming down here. And we both were kind of like, what if we did our family? We did all the generations. And I mean, it's real. We'll talk about real yeah. again. We're all, you know, mom and I are usually like sweaty bear behind the <laughs> camera, <laughs> you know, doing that. And here we are in front of the camera. Sweaty bear. Sweaty bear running. But yeah, because we're shooting fall with tweed, right? Yes, and it's like right. June. You're right. So that was an interesting, humbling experience. But I kind of thought, let's just limp through this and hopefully nobody, well, maybe we'll get some, some credit for doing this and keeping yeah. everyone safe. But everybody has been blown away. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know it's not because we're gorgeous. It's just because we were real and we oh. put ourselves out there. Do you know what I mean? No, no, like, you're actually I think a very photogenic just, family. Don't sell well, yourself short. Well, shop is awesome. No, but. I, I remember asking her, make sure you put a footnote that it's us, yeah. that it's family. Make sure you put that. As worn by uh, We did this because <laughs> yeah. of, because I didn't want anyone to think that we we're just trying thought to be we models. were so hot models <laughs> yeah. out there that, that they, they got that we were just doing this out of necessity. Yeah. But to her point, I mean, even as a family, it was such a bonding two days. I mean, there's my mom, bless her heart. Oh, oh, yeah. She's uh, 86 years old. And she's out there in the heat. She got sick a couple times, oh, and we had no. to like yeah. get her cooled yeah, off. And then you got a seven-year-old. Oh my god! Like, when is my turn? Seven-year-old that's like <laughs> bouncing off the walls. <laughs> and so, just to get one shot with her yeah. is like uh, hours. So anyway, it was it was a very humbling experience. We all looked 
at the raw footage when it came out, it was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. All right, is this for real? Yeah. He said, can you Photoshop this? Can you Photoshop that? You know, we were like all in there. And, and, and finally our team said, you can't Photoshop that much out. Yeah. You can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was Photoshop bad. yourself into another human being. Yeah. I was like, it's just not possible. Was, oh, shoot. Anyway. Where did you shoot? I've looked at some of the images. It looks like you're on a farm somewhere. We were at the Museum of Appalachia, which we'd actually shot at. It's in Norris. We had actually shot there for fall about five years ago, so we kind of knew the lay of the land. We knew it was outside, so, you know, we weren't inside anywhere and putting anybody else at risk. So it worked out, and we used a crew that we've used a couple of them before, but a photographer we never worked with before, and she was probably like, what is going on because of all the dynamics we just described. So, (laughs) but it worked out. Yeah. Yeah, it was was quite interesting. You know, we were supposed to be in the Cotswilds in England because our this fall's collection was all about my travels and experiences in the countryside in England. So even from the horse painting I had or the saddle that I, vintage saddle I bought in a shop that with the old tack on it, I mean, all these elements were all from my travels to these little different villages all around the Cotswolds over the years. So it was really Trying to recreate that here, here in Tennessee was kind of interesting, right. but we did we we got it done. We got it done. You did. Yeah. You did. Did a beautiful job. Well, we just can't thank you enough for joining us today on Misinterpreted and sharing your story of Patricia Nash Designs and the roots of how you evolved. And hopefully, our listeners will check out your brand, follow Patricia Nash Designs, watch your own QVC and HSN. You can look for those listings and you will find her products at patricianashdesigns.com. And they're on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, Twitter, everywhere. So, Absolutely. And listeners, we will respond to your questions and comments on this episode as well as others. So do please post them using the hashtag misinterpreted. And that's hashtag MSinterpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mary Beth West. And you can also follow Kelly at KD Fletcher. And of course, the Fletcher Twitter handle at Fletcher PR. And our thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Hill of Knoxville-based HumblePod at HumblePod.com. Everyone, thanks for joining us. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 